0: Good morning, my name is Paul. Sarah told me I should greet everyone with an aloha this morning, so aloha. Um... I'm one of the pastors here, thrilled that you are here with us. Like she said, we are continuing our series in the book of Colossians. So if you have a Bible, if you have a copy of the Scriptures, either on a smart device or you've got a hard copy, open to the book of Colossians. We are in chapter 3. I want to just reiterate that announcement that was just made about what's happening with our children's ministry this summer. So uh, I know your house and your family life probably kind of ramps up actually a little bit in the summer because you're trying to plan uh, vacations and different things uh, to keep the kids busy or just kind of different ways to get out that maybe you can't get out during the rest of the year. So our house gets pretty busy here. Uh, We've got summer camp that's coming up in a couple weeks, which is gonna be awesome. And then this kids camp, which we've traditionally called our Vacation Bible School, is just a massive opportunity for us to be a huge blessing to our community and to our church family. Um, I, I was sharing at the last hour how children's ministry has just been so pivotal in my own life uh, because my, my kids, my kids have just learned so much about Jesus and have come to faith through the children's ministry here, but Vacation Bible School was the way that I first heard about Jesus. These people came to our house. This was a long time ago, uh, but people actually came to our house, knocked on the door and be like, hey, we'd like to take uh, your children to a church, a place you've never heard of for a week for a Vacation Bible School, something my parents had never heard of, and they were like, yes, please, just take them. We don't even know who you are, um, but get on that strange bus with those strange people. And uh, But that's how I first heard about Jesus, so that was pretty awesome. So you have an opportunity Uh, to really make an impact that has a ripple effect through generations. It's amazing what God does in these kind of stage of life ministries. So both for our kids' camp and then also one of the things that we do with our children's ministry, we have Sunday school volunteers who are right now caring for kids and caring for kids at last hour as well. Uh, And they rotate off during the summer. And so we're looking for leaders that can come in, teachers that can come in and volunteer and help uh, during the the summer uh, so that we can give those who are teaching their the rest of the year, uh, just kind of a, a break and give them the summer off. And uh, I know when we present, you know, summer volunteers for children's ministry, uh, there's a lot of reasons why you think, well, okay, it's going to be really hard because we have our own kind of family vacation that we're going to be doing. And it's okay. We have a solution for that. All you have to do is just take a few extra kids with you on vacation <laughs> and we'll get everything covered. To be, no, we have people uh, who are actually ready to stand in if you're going to be missing if you're going to be out. But if you've been looking for a way that you can connect in a place of service in the life of our church, this is an incredible opportunity. Like I said, it just gives you the opportunity to invest for just a small amount of time, something that will go on for years and years in the life of these kids. So Either one of those opportunities, or if you want to sign your kids up for the kids camp, uh, all of that can be handled in uh, the the lobby at the info desk um, today, and so that's a great just opportunity for you. Okay, so Colossians chapter three, Eric read the passage for us. We're continuing in this series, uh, an important section of scripture for us today. I I have some friends... um, that have a life coach, which is just a fascinating idea to me. Uh, And from what I understand, uh, a life coach is someone that considers where you are in life currently and then where you want to go or where you want to end up, and then they help you to make the right decisions on how to actually get there, on how to achieve and experience the success that you wanna have in certain areas of your life. They help you to architect how do you take the steps from where you are to where you wanna be, and it sounds just like a very helpful relationship, honestly. The interesting thing to me about a relationship with a life coach uh, is that there's someone who really does help you to kind of take the next right step. But you don't have to do what they say, like like they give you a plan, they give you a thought on what you should do, but they have no real like, authority over your life because you still get to make a decision on whether or not you're going to take their counsel. And I'm not saying that you should ignore them necessarily. I'm just saying, like, it's interesting to me that you can pay somebody to help you make better decisions in your life, and you can completely ignore what they tell you. I wonder what that's like. All right. The pastors are laughing over here. Um, What's even more interesting to me is that we can treat Jesus like a life coach and not Lord. We can treat Jesus like, Jesus, give me some counsel, give me some advice, give me some spiritual coaching, but if there's something that you say that I don't agree with or that doesn't fit my lifestyle or that I don't like, then I'll just kind of pass on that. And a lot of us, we're, we're kind of slick because we won't just straight out say no to Jesus, but what we'll do is we'll just redefine him or we'll redefine or, or what he values or what he says, and we kind of custom fit Jesus to fit our lifestyle. We wanna hear what Jesus has to say, but the real authority over my life, the one who actually makes the calls over my life is me. And we say that Jesus is Lord, but Lord means rule and reign over all. And last week, we, we said the only proper response is to say, yes, Lord. It's kind of an oxymoron to say, no, Lord. It just doesn't doesn't make any sense. The highest authority there is over my life is you, Lord. Your way is my way. I don't move in a direction without you directing. Lord is an expansive and comprehensive title and relationship. And we will say it, but we don't always live like it. And so when you consider Jesus... Is he a life coach, like he's got some pretty good ideas on how your life could work, or is he Lord over all of life? And we have to wrestle with this, not just conceptually, because, you know, we're in church, so of course we're supposed to say, yes, Jesus is Lord. I'm talking about functionally in your life. How does it actually play out in your life? Is he life coach or Lord? And it's a really important question as we start this section of Colossians, because we kind of turn a corner in this letter that Paul's writing. He's just spent two chapters talking about the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ. He paints this beautiful picture of it. He writes this amazing poem just exalting Christ and raising our eyes and raising our head to who he is. And now he's going to turn to how that relationship with Jesus and that reality of who he is should actually bring transformation and change to your decisions and into your the activity of your life because when the word of god comes into your heart and that hebrew idea around heart is like the the mission control center of your life it's the place from which all your decisions about life stem and flow from the word of god should actually influence and impact what you do with your life. And Paul's gonna turn our attention to that in the rest of the book of Colossians because he's already told the church, look, you've been set free. You've been set free of the powers of this world. You've been set free for living a life under the lordship of Christ, which means you are now free to live a transformed life. Because otherwise, if Jesus is just a life coach and he's not Lord, it doesn't really make any sense for us to amen and to nod when we say that all things are created by him and for him and all things are held together by him. And then we turn around and we live our lives as if all things are held together by us. And all things are for me. And all things find their terminal end in in me. And my own autonomous rule and rain. You can't say that Jesus is Lord and live like you are Lord. And, and from here on out in Colossians and, and really like most of the New Testament, we have to answer that question. Jesus, are you Lord of my life or are you a life coach for me? Because he's, Paul's already presented Jesus as the creator and the sustainer of the entire universe. And in, in the passage that we have this morning... Jesus is on a throne. He's ruling over all that he has made. And Paul's also told us that Jesus has used this authority. He's used this power that he has not to crush us, but, but he stepped off that throne and pursued us and paid our debt and gave everything down to his last drop of blood to rescue You, to love you, to care for you. He is Lord, Paul has told us, and He's the lover of your soul. He's full of power and strength and authority, and He is love. He is the head over all creation, and He's the loving and wise head over His church. And now Paul is going to pivot and He's going to show us that in the reality of who Jesus is and what He has done, our life should change as a result of that. And this is not saying that uh, I as a pastor should be that authority or even the church should be that authority. This is that Jesus is Lord, so he is to be the authority over your life if you are his. We're going to stop and pray because we need God to help us with that. Because any time anyone comes in and says, I am authority over your life, our natural inclination is to bristle at that, to back up. We don't want that. We want to be Lord over our life. So what what the scripture is bringing us today is not in the posture of bringing shame and bringing condemnation. There is a gracious and loving invitation from the scripture to set our minds, our hearts, and our lives on the person of Jesus. But we need the Spirit of God to help us to see that for the loving and gracious invitation that it is. So let's just stop and ask God to help us here this morning. Father, we love you. And God, we thank you for your word. And God, we do thank you that you are here with us. But God, give us an awareness of your presence and of your power. And God, as you work by your Spirit, God, and you begin to point out things individually in us, God, that, are, that our minds are set on, that, are, that aren't you, that are apart from your purposes, that are apart from what you've given us. God, I pray that in your kindness, you would lead us to repentance. But God, we, uh, we cannot do this work on our own or in our flesh. This has to be a supernatural work that you do in our lives, and we need Holy Spirit power for that. So Spirit of God, would you move in our midst with freedom? God, I just pray that you would fill me, that you would fill us, that you would fill the space in this room, God, that you would break up just the, the stony parts of our heart, the parts that are holding on to idols, the parts that are holding on to things that we think are gonna give us meaning or satisfaction or life or the acceptance or approval that we so desperately only find in you. So Holy Spirit, would would you come? Would you work? Would you be in our midst? God, would you illuminate your word? Would we see the beauty of Jesus Uh, here this morning, in this moment, in this time, from your word. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. I I know that Eric already read this passage. We're just going to dive back into it. Again, just because it's good for us to saturate in the words of God and to soak in the words of God. Colossians chapter three, verse one. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So Paul starts, because he's gonna get into instruction about their lives. He starts with a theological reality, and it's gonna serve as the reason, and it's gonna serve as the power source of their new life. You died with Christ, and now you've been raised with Christ. So if you're not familiar with the Apostle Paul's story, the Apostle Paul actually saw the risen Christ. And so for Paul, the realest thing in the universe is the resurrection of Jesus. That's the realest power source for all of Paul's instructions to the churches. You've died with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. There's a new status that you are in because of what Christ has done. And it means there's a new way of life for those who have died and been raised in Christ. What Paul is saying is, if you are in Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have been radically repositioned because of Jesus. And here Paul's saying, "It's if you've really been raised with Christ, it should change what you're seeking. It should change what you're aimed at. Paul does this in other letters too. He just speaks to this reality that if, whether you're a Bible person or a Christian or not, you just know this because this is the way that we work. This is the way that we operate in the world. What you aim at or what you set your mind to, you'll care about meaning your heart will be set to it, and what your heart is set on, you'll pursue. You'll pursue with your energy. You'll pursue with your resources. You'll pursue with your life. What your mind is set to, your heart will become set upon, and you will pursue it. To illustrate it, ladies, if you think about your very first crush, your mind just Kind of worked over time. Like every time uh, they would look at you or maybe write something or like accidentally bump into you, like it starts your mind spinning, which now kind of inflames your heart. And then you start to kind of pursue or take steps towards. Guys, it's like when you want to buy tires, <laughs> it's the same process there. And what Paul is saying. Since you've been raised with Christ, your life has a whole new set of pursuits. If you've been raised with Christ, I pursue Christ and what he desires, not culture and what its desires are. Before you were a follower of Jesus, your sights were set on all kinds of different things. You're pursuing all kinds of things. You're just pursuing whatever you wanted. Before you were a follower of Jesus, you never thought, I'm made by God for God. You just think, I want that. I'm going after that. That will bring me some kind of recognition. That will bring me some kind of pleasure. That will bring me some kind of fill in the blank. You're wise in your own eyes. You never even give another thought that there should be other pursuits in life. You just pursue what you want. And, and then what Paul is saying is we've been raised with Christ. You died, you've been raised with Christ. You're a totally new creation. Now start seeking the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne. Jesus, if he's on the throne and he's above all, he must know better how this world works and how I am to work in this world. And so I'm gonna take all my cues from him. Now, we have to, we have to rightly apply this. Because when Paul is talking about seeking what is above, he's pointing to an (laughs) eschatological reality, meaning there is a divine reality that's coming, a future that is coming. So set your sights on that. This is really important because Paul is not trying to say that the world that we live in now is useless. He's saying we live in this world and this world matters. Our sights are set on heavenly realities. And the where our sights are set should impact and dictate how we live in this world. There's a commentator um, that I read this week that was talking about this. This is a long paragraph we're going to put on the screen. And I'm going to go slow because I want you to really track what he's saying. He says it well here. The heavenliness of Christian existence does not mean that real life is in some other realm and human life on earth is doomed to be a shadowy, unauthentic existence. If that were true, the Apostle Paul would not devote so much attention to the personal, domestic, communal, and societal aspects of Christian living. If you're familiar with the writings of Paul, he writes extensively on those things. Believers live in the exalted Christ and he in them. That's what this passage is saying. Therefore, he calls them to live out in earthly structures and relationships. Read, all of life, the life of heaven within them is all for Jesus. Christians are not called to escape the world, but to be obedient to God within it, allowing the transcendent dimension where Christ reigns to set the priorities for our lives. Paul is not calling for a spiritual escapism or encouraging believers to just kind of always have their head in the clouds. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor and a theologian, uh, and he wrote in a work called Thy Kingdom Come— Bonhoeffer died in a in a Nazi concentration camp. He spent two or three years in a, in a Nazi concentration camp, and he was hanged in that in that camp. And he writes in Thy Kingdom Come, talking about a Christian's disdain for earth in times of trouble. So often, when we're in a time of trouble, we're in a time of suffering we just have a real like disdain for, for earth and for the life that we have here. But he says this, he says, Christ does not will or intend this weakness. Instead, he makes man strong. He does not lead man in a religious flight from this world to other worlds beyond. Rather, he gives him back to the earth as its loyal son, meaning he strengthens us in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trouble, so that we are a blessing in this life. The aim, what Paul is aiming at, he's saying, I want you to have a heart that is fixed on God, that avoids being ensnared by the lure and entanglements of this world, It doesn't mean that you are to completely cut yourself off from the responsibilities of this life. Setting our minds on things above means that our lives are oriented around Jesus or they orbit around Jesus and our lives are aimed towards heaven. Because where your mind is set determines your orientation in this world. It is your true north. It sets the direction of what you go after. If I set my mind on Jesus, if I set my heart on Jesus, I am going to orient my way of thinking which means I will orient my affections, which means I will orient my pursuits and my way of living after him. I need to have the mind set on Christ so that I can have the mindset of Christ in my relationships, in my vocation, when I'm at school, in different environments and spaces, wherever God takes me. Pastor Brian will talk about this a lot. He talks about how we improv Jesus in the places that God takes us. It's because my mind is set on Christ, and so I have the mind set of Christ. And so when I step into a place or step into a relationship or have different encounters in different environments, I'm stepping in with the mind of Christ, as if I am Christ. When I was a kid, there was a really popular uh, commercial um, that I, I think Gatorade did it, actually, on Michael Jordan. And it was the idea of, like, I want to be like Mike. And, and, the, and the lyrics to the, the jingle were, Sometimes I dream that he is me. You got to see that's how I dream to be. I dream I move. I dream I groove like Mike if I could be like Mike. I wanna be, I wanna be, I wanna be like Mike. And so when I was a kid in like middle school, I was about three and a half feet tall, and I loved playing basketball with my friends. And I would always play in our like driveway with my tongue hanging out all the time, every play. And I would get about six inches off the ground, tongues out, my dad would come out, what are you doing? Why is your tongue hanging out all over the place? And I was like, oh dad, because I wanna be like Mike. I got my mindset on mic, so I have the mic mindset when I play. And Paul's saying, have your mindset on Christ. So you have the Christ mindset wherever it is that you're going. And he's saying, in order for you to be able to do that, you can't be distracted by having your sights, your mind, your heart set on lesser things. I'm watching uh, NBA playoffs right now, and uh, what's so interesting to me is when, uh, 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 and I don't know when this started, I I guess I've seen it kind of like as long as I've been watching basketball on TV, I guess, but when a guy will get up uh, from the opposing team, so on the visiting team, when he'll get up to shoot a free throw... Everybody in the background, though, that's behind the hoop is, like, going crazy. They got those inflatable, like, baton things. There's signs. Uh, I think ASU does all kinds of crazy stuff where they have, like, like full-on skits. So, uh, and and there's, like, all this stuff. And they're all just screaming out distractions and signs, making noise, and all kinds of stuff. And it's, like, I think that's what we experience as Christians in the world. The scripture is calling us. God is wooing us. Paul's instructing us. Set your mind on the things of Christ. And the culture's in the background like, woo, 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 woo. (laughs) Woo. And and what I love is when you just see a player who just can block out all those distractions. But for us, we're easily, easily distracted because there's constant noise. And Paul's saying, "You look, you got to work really hard. You have to set your mind on Christ. We have to be intentional about setting our minds on things above. When I was in high school, I wrestled. And in our wrestling room, uh, the coach had put up this sign that said, what you visualize, uh, or if you can visualize, you can actualize. Uh, and the whole idea is like if you visualize success, you can actualize success. If you visualize a victory, you'll actualize a victory. I don't know how well that phrase worked because I never visualized myself getting my tail kicked as many times as I did. But that's what actually happened. But the premise, the premise does hold true. Because we, what you visualize, what you set as a picture of what you're going for, is what you will work towards actualizing in your life. And whether you realize it or not, so many of you are actually, you're doing this. Some of you might have a literal picture posted somewhere of what you want to achieve or attain in this life. could be a home you really want or a, 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 a job a reality or experience that you really want or a, a car or a thing or a boat or a vacation spot or a person, whatever. You have something in your life. You have an actual picture that you're looking at so that you can take steps towards achieving that or having that. You're setting your life towards there. And what God is saying out of mercy and love and grace Is don't set your sights, your heart, your mind, your life towards something that will not satisfy you once you actualize it. And there are countless stories all the time. In fact, it's so it's so cliche and so basic. I worked so hard to get or to achieve or to earn or to have, and when I did, it was okay, but it wasn't enough. And I realize what I spent. And I realize all the time. And I realize what I missed. And what God is calling us to. Say, no, no, no set your mind on things above so that you can properly see this life and the things that you have in this life and the things that you don't have in this life so that you can see blessing properly and so that you can see suffering properly, so that you can see that you are part of an eternal story and the almighty God in his sovereignty has placed you in the family, in the city, and the occupation that you're in and all the ups and downs and highs and lows of your story are for his glory and his purpose and your ultimate goals. So we are to use whatever God has given us and use it in the most excellent way because our sights are set on eternity. Look at the last couple of verses and we're almost done. Verse three for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life appears then you will also then you also will appear with him in glory. Okay so there's three things real quick as we draw to a close that Paul's just going to kind of get our attention around. One is a life that's put to death. The second is a life that's hidden in Christ. And then finally, a life for the glory of Christ. When God saved you and by grace brought you to a decision to follow Jesus, the scripture teaches you are consumed by Jesus, meaning Jesus should change everything about you. And what happens is a lot of times we will approach our life with God as more of kind of like a remodel than a complete reconstruction like Jesus, if you have to come in and you gotta pull up some carpet and put down different flooring, you gotta paint and you have to kind of change, you gotta put some shiplap up because we all know God loves shiplap. Um, That's fine. But when I stare out the window and I see that you're pulling a wrecking ball up to the house and you're gonna tear up the very foundation, that's where I start to really kind of lock up because we have certain sins we have certain mindsets we have certain behaviors and beliefs that Jesus has to completely tear down that he completely has to remove to rebuild in their place his better way of living and Paul uses really strong like funeral language here for those for that process because there are things in our life that have to die and we don't often want these habits or patterns or that sin to be put to death. It's kind of like this, and I'm going to be a little bit gross here to make a point. If I offer you a glass of water because you're just dying of thirst, and I say, here's a a glass of water for you. Uh, One thing about this glass of water, uh, it's mostly pure. Mostly pure. It has trace amounts of fecal matter in it. But it's mostly pure. And, it, and it, yes, over time, it's going to make you sick, um, but it will temporarily help your thirst. It's probably going to cause some diarrhea and some dehydration. Mostly pure. It's going to help in the short term. So, uh, Jeff Tenney, who's uh, playing drums for us this morning, he I don't, I don't know if he's like an engineer or a scientist or an astronaut or whatever. He's crazy smart. Works for NASA. Helps to build satellites or something. Um I, he's, he maybe he works for Mission Impossible. I don't know. He's very smart. Um, but he was telling me this morning on the International Space Station uh, that the way that they get water is by purifying sweat and urine. And he said it's 93% effective. <laughs> now, here's the crazy part. He said the water on the uh, International Space Station is actually more pure than the water in a lot of communities and municipalities. So think about that. I don't know what that has to do with anything. I just thought, that's interesting. Okay. (laughs) So if I offer you that glass of water and I say it's mostly pure, it's got a little bit of stuff in there it's gonna make you sick. Are you just gonna be like, well, okay, whatever, you know, it's bacteria, we all got it. No, no, you're gonna say, hey, do you have anything that's like totally pure? Do you have anything that I can drink that won't make me sick, that's not full of disease? But in your life, the Scripture and the Holy Spirit point out things that are killing you, making you more and more thirsty no matter how much you take in, that are constantly pointing out things that you are consuming that are full of disease and making you sicker. And you read this and you think, yeah, but I can live with a little disease. I can continue to gossip just a little. I mean, the person I'm talking about is not going to find out. I can keep this little lie up. It's not really going to hurt anybody. It just kind of mostly helps me in business a little bit, kind of helps me in this relationship. I don't really think anybody's going to find out, so I can kind of keep this little lie going. I can... I can keep up this little addiction. It just kind of helps me just, you know, just cope. I have a stressful life, stressful job, stressful marriage, stressful family. Helps me sleep at night. Helps me kind of function. Helps me do that. I can just kind of keep up this little addiction. Doesn't hurt anybody. I I can continue to consume and to scroll through content that just makes me more and more anxious and just makes me more and more insecure. just makes me covet and compare more and more. But you know what? It's, everybody's, everybody's on it. Everybody does it. It's just the way the world works. It's just the way that culture works. I can just let trace amounts of disease hang around in my life. Jesus actually has something to say about this in Mark chapter 9. He says this. He says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands and go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. It's pretty intense, Jesus. He's clearly not about mutilating your body, but he's trying to see, trying to help you to see just how egregious sin is in your life and just how important it is to put to death. We're going to hear more about that. But if we felt the same way about sin in our lives as we do about the water we drink, we probably wouldn't comfort ourselves that the pollution level in our lives is an acceptable level. We wouldn't believe the lie of the culture that a little disease in your life is acceptable. And Paul is not talking about behavior modification Like, as long as you just stop doing a few things and you start, like, serving at church, you're good. Paul is talking about renewal. He's talking about resurrection. Uh, E.D. Martin says this, the process as described is not a matter of gradually changing the old into something better, but of, and I love this phrase, progressively actualizing the already existing new creation. There's resurrection in you if you are a Christian. And what Paul is trying to call us to is actualizing that resurrection life that resurrected life. And we do not do this on our own willpower. This is not a like, hey, you better pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of talk. Paul doesn't have that kind of talk. The gospel doesn't talk like that. The power comes from our having been raised with Christ and from the one who raised him from the dead. The irresistible compulsion to sin is replaced by the irresistible power of God. So first... Paul says, "There's a, there's a life. There's a, there's a death. Second, there's a hidden life. You are in Christ. Your old life is gone. I, I should have got a, a picture of this, but you know those like uh, Russian nesting dolls. It's like there's a there's a doll, and you take the lid off, I'm like oh look another doll, another doll, another doll, another doll. It's that kind of picture. Like you are hidden." In Christ, your old life is gone. So what Jesus is saying is like, where I go, you go. Where you go, I go. When he died, Paul says, uh, I died. When he beat death and rose, I rise New life is mine. I am a new creation. I mentioned St. Augustine last week. And St. Augustine, I was, I was telling a story um, before he knew Jesus, before God saved him. He was a sex addict and he went back to uh, one of the old towns that he used to kind of hang out in and he ran into an, an old relationship, kind of an old flame. And as the story goes, uh, she went up to him and whispered in his ear, Augustine, it is I. And he turned to her and he said, yes, but it is not I, meaning I am a new creation. That is not me. My life is hidden away in Christ, and now I am defined by who I am in him, and I have a future and a hope in him, and we end with this because the future is a glorious future. Sam Rutherford has said of Christ, he in his lone self is a sufficient heaven, which is why the apostle Paul says here in this section, Christ is our life. It is true we have life in Jesus, but now Paul is saying, no, my life is Jesus. And and in other places, and you may know this text, Paul even says, in fact, if I, for me to live is Christ. Jesus is the pearl of great price. He's the treasure in the field that you sell everything else have so that you can have. He's the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valley, the fairest of 10,000, the scripture says. We don't have the vocabulary or the words to properly describe the brilliance and the beauty of who he is. And the call here of the scripture and the invitation from our loving father to set our minds and our gaze and our focus and our hearts and our lives on him is an invitation of grace and love towards brilliance and beauty in the person of Jesus. Set your mind and your life on that which is most beautiful. And like the song says, and then the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. And God, uh, just four verses, but so much for us to process. God, so much for us to, to work through. God, so much for us to be lovingly confronted with this morning because the reality is, God, our minds are often set on other things. Our hearts are often set on lesser things. God, our lives are often aimed at things that will never do what only you can do for us. And so, God, um, we hear this this morning, not in a way to elicit shame, but, God, in a way that leads us to freedom. And so, God, would we, would we hear it? Would we have ears to hear the call to freedom this morning from your word? Freedom in you, freedom to live under your loving rule and reign, because your ways are the best ways your ways are the highest ways and god they lead us to flourishing they lead us to life god they keep us in step with you and so god we just we thank you for your kindness this morning and god so fix our fix our eyes fix our gaze fix our hearts and our lives on you in jesus name